I felt in some ways that we were almost hiding in the shadows in the corner of that room, observing the way in which the Lord and his disciples ate together that first Lord's Supper. The passage today follows immediately upon that Lord's Supper, so I'll ask you once again to enter with me as we go into that room of the Last Supper. The meal now has been completed. The instruments for the washing of feet have been put to one side and the table has been cleared. But the disciples now are almost in a state of shock from the revelation that the Lord has given to them during that meal. That one of them sitting right there, one of the twelve, is going to betray him. Their shock is temporarily suspended by the action of Judas, who after a hurried, whispered conference with Christ, leaves the room, they suspect nothing. And while he is out on his vile mission, and they're still disturbed by the matter of a betrayer in their midst, the Lord brings even more consternation to their heart, for he then tells them in chapter 13, verse 33, I am going to leave you. I'm not going to be with you anymore, and you want to follow me, and you can't follow and now they have the prospects of Christ being gone. And in Peter's attempt to stop that, the Lord has to tell Peter, and Peter, tonight you are going to deny me. No wonder the Lord has to tell the disciples in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled, for if there ever was a group of men with troubled hearts, these men this night were in the deepest kind of trouble. Turmoil from every side was coming to them. Everything they had lived for seemed to be almost about to be upset. And therefore, the Lord at the low point of the evening tells them this beautiful message that we have in John 14, 1 through 6. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I want you to stop just for a moment and ask yourself a question. I think I know the answer already. Uh, have you ever been all shook up? <laughs> well, that's just what this word troubled means. It has to be agitated, put in a bottle and you shake it real hard. And many a times we feel that. The probability is that nearly everyone in this place today has a heart that's been troubled about one thing or another. But the fact is, a troubled heart is the exception, to, as the rule to life, and not the exception. And the fact is that men everywhere are troubled for the same basic reason that the disciples were troubled in this particular passage. Do you remember what really troubled Christ has said, I'm going to leave. Now, they had been having Christ with them for three years, and now they're not going to have him anymore. And there is the essence of most troubled hearts. The fact is, 
Men don't want to lose what they have. You want to hold on to something that you have, and the very threat of losing it causes the heart to be troubled. They enjoyed the fellowship with Christ for three years now. They counted on His bringing in the Messianic kingdom and ruling and reigning with Him. And now they sense they're about to lose Christ, and with Christ all hopes of the rule and reign that had been fairly well promised to them by the Lord. They'd counted on having him around for a long time. And what are we going to do? You know, this lesson is a hard one for us to learn. And the hard lesson that men have is that you can't keep what you have forever. Somehow we just don't learn that. You see, taxes and bills and cars and ills take away all of our money. Uh, you just can't keep your money. Age takes our parents, our loved ones, our youth, and finally ourselves. You can't keep your youth, no matter how hard you try. We're in the midst of an era, especially here in California, where youth is deified. And if you've lost your youth, you've lost everything. How sad to see these aging women who once had a reputation as beauty queens trying desperately to maintain that and the former jocks who are so bold in their athletic prowess still trying to strut as though they could carry on forever. We lose all that. What a futile thing it is in life. You can't keep it. You know, parents want to keep their children children. And the hardest lesson some of your parents had is to accept the fact you're not children anymore. Well, you still act like it. But, you know, you really are supposed to be adults now. And uh, they're letting you come away to college. Uh, they realize they're losing you. You know, it's a sad thing to a parent to see that little child that he can't really hold anymore in his arms. He wants to hold strings. And, you know, I've got three like that, I know. Uh, and the hard thing is letting go of them. But you can't keep them forever. Everything you have in life is transient. The clock of life does not stay on high noon forever. It moves. Therefore, we're troubled. What's going to happen now? What's going to happen next? And therefore, we listen to the Lord's words. And the very first words that he states are simple. Stop letting your heart be troubled. Now, grammatically, this statement of Christ is an imperative, a command. And a command is an interesting thing. A command sees a desired goal as possible. And then it gives a means to obtain it. For example, uh, if a door is closed and you want the door open, you say, open the door. Now, whether or not the door will be opened is relevant to the response to that command. You see, it's a conditional reality. We see the desirability of the door being opened, but it will not be opened unless there is obedience to the command. And therefore, when the Lord states, let not your heart be troubled, literally stop letting your heart be troubled. He has stated that it's desirable that our hearts not be troubled. It's possible for our hearts to stop being troubled. But whether your hearts will stop their troubling this morning is relevant to your obedience to this command of Christ. You see, the disciples were looking at circumstances and not at Christ. They were looking at the circumstances of their life and suddenly they looked back and said, wait a minute, what happens if we are out in a boat in a storm and Christ isn't with us? Oh, what's going to happen if we are there in the midst of a multitude that's hungry and we can't feed them? What happens if we're in the midst of 
great demonic attack and Christ isn't there to overcome. And they began to look at their circumstances. And let me tell you right now, when you begin to look at your circumstances, fear takes hold and the heart gets troubled. Right now, many of you have certain things you're looking at and you start looking at circumstances and things get bleak. Hey, I know I live there all the time. I have to stop myself every day and say, hey, look, stop thinking about circumstances. Years ago, I heard the story about a man, asked his friend, well, how are you doing? He said, oh, I'm doing very well under the circumstances. His response is, what are you doing under the circumstances? <laughs> We're not supposed to be under the circumstances. We're supposed to keep our minds and our eyes fixed somewhere else. You see, any time you have your minds focused on your circumstances, fear and a troubled heart begin. But watch the answer that Christ gives to the troubled heart. Faith begins the step to stop the troubled heart. Look at the words of Christ. Stop letting your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe in me. Did you hear these beautiful words of Christ? The statement is, very simply, you believe in God. Now that's a good place to begin. The Lord actually gives us as an assertion. Certainly they believed in God. As Orthodox Jews, they heard the great Shema, that is it called to worship. I used to listen to a program that uh, addressed to the Jewish people. They always start a Shema, Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. He is one God. That is the foundation of Judaism. And so when the Lord said, you believe in God, he was assuming the fact that they did believe in God and they believed in the oneness of God. Now, wait just a moment. The oneness of God, that seems to be a very low point of theology to begin. It's not the most exciting point of theology. But listen to James 2.19. You believe there is one God, James says. The demons also believe and tremble. I want you to listen to this. If the oneness of God is sufficient to make the demons tremble, it ought to let you know that the oneness of God is sufficient to stop His people from trembling. You believe God. Trust Him. What do you believe about God? That will tell me a lot about you. You really believe His goodness? <laughs> uh, I say this because you say, Oh, yes, I believe in the goodness of God. You believe in it theologically. Well, let me ask you, do you believe in it today in your heart? For example, if you believe in the goodness of God and you say God is good, then the fact is He is not going to allow anything to come your way that is not good for you. Now, that is a very important thought. I'll tell you, friends, that has just meant all the difference in the world to me, believing in the goodness of God. I have faced moments where everything that I had worked for and labored for seemed to be on the verge of being splintered and thrown out and destroyed forever. In one moment, everything would be gone. And before that moment came, I stopped and said, Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe He loves you? Do you believe that you're trusting and following? Then He will never let anything come your way that is not good for you. <laughs> Final exams are coming. <laughs> That's not so good, is it? Well, for some of you say, well, it's already too late for me anyway. <laughs> uh, Final exams are just the old uh, coup de grace, you know, the shot in the head. I'm already out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
And unfortunately, there are some college students that are bitter with God for failure. Yeah, you're bitter with God. Because you said, Lord, you told me to go to college and I followed you. And what am I doing? I'm flunking everything. Yeah, why did you call me here for it? No matter how hard I try, for some that's true. They work hard and they fail. Did you hear the Lord's word? He said, do you believe me? Trust me. If you believe my goodness, trust me. That whatever I am doing is for your good. Do you believe in the grace of God? Then you shouldn't have a troubled heart. Do you believe in the power of God? Then why have a troubled heart? Do you believe in the wisdom of God? Then God is able to solve any problem. The Lord says, believe in God. If you're having troubles this morning and a heart is disturbed, the problem always starts at that very point, the lack of faith in God. You don't really believe God. But the Lord takes us one step further. For he tells us that fear is the absence of faith. You see, one day the disciples were in a boat with the Lord on the Sea of Galilee. The waves were dashing, the wind was roaring. It looked like any moment they were going to die. And all they did was hear the waves and see, hear the wind and see the waves. And they forgot who was in the boat with them. It's Christ. And they're so excited and perturbed. Lord, don't you care that we perish? Well, I love that verse in Mark chapter 4, the 40th verse. The Lord awoke and he spoke a word and the winds ceased and the waves calmed down. The Lord asked them two questions. The second was the answer to the first. The question was so simple. How is it that you are so fearful? Why is it that you have no faith? Do you get that? How is it that you're so fearful? And the second question answers it. Why do you have no faith? If we have faith, there is no fear. If we have fear, there is no faith. And the Lord says, believe me. And if you really believe in God, you'll believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. The Lord said, extend the same faith to me that you have extended to God. Do you believe in me? And again, I ask that same question. Do you believe in Christ? If so, what do you believe about Christ? Well, the Lord tells us in this passage that follows, and following your Bible while I'm giving you this, and you can see there right here, He gives at least five things that we should believe concerning Him right here. Do you believe me? And I want you to listen carefully. I'm going to discuss four of them now, and I'll come back to the fifth a little bit later. But look at what He tells them about it. First... He says, believe me. There is the first thing in verse 1. Believe in God? Believe me. Believe in my person. Second, in my Father's house are many uh, dwelling places. You must believe in heaven as a place. And he uses this word, I'm going to prepare a place. I'm going to prepare a place. And so we believe in heaven as a reality and that Christ is going there. Third, he states... I go to prepare a place for you. He tells the reason for his departure is to make preparation for us. Believe me, the Lord says, I'm doing this for you. And then, where I, that where I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there, you may be also. The Lord says, believe that I'm going to come back and get you. All oh, those are four thoughts that we ought to believe about Christ that will remove the troubles from our heart. So what if Christ is gone? 
We know where he's gone. We know what he's doing there. We know he's going to come back and get us. Believe me, says the Lord. Let me examine these just a little more carefully. Believe in my person. The Lord states this, accept me as equal to God. You believe God, believe me in that same fashion. So we accept him as full deity and trust him in everything that he says he is and everything he promises to do. Believe that he's going to his father's house. I'm just going to say that and leave it for right now. I'll come back later. But this next thought, believe that I'm preparing a place for you. Here is a thought that should set your heart soaring regardless of the problems today. Just think, if the Lord made this world as beautiful as it is in only six days, think what your room in heaven is going to look like. He's been preparing it for 2,000 years. My, what a wonderful thing He's done for us. But that's not the most important part about this passage. Look, it states something very simple. While I'm away, everything I'm going to be doing is for you. That's why Christ is gone. He hasn't forgotten us. He is thinking about us all the time he's gone. Oh, he's been away and we forget about him all the time. We forget about Christ in our daily life, in the rush for doing studies, and in your desire to carry out your social life and the things that are so insignificant, so trivial in the light of eternity. You forget Christ. But all the time you've forgotten Him. He's in heaven remembering you and preparing a place. Oh, what a secret to removing the troubles and cares from your heart. You know, I'm not going to go a lot into detail on heaven. Let me just mention a few things on this passage. It tells us simply this. I'm going to skim through them very fast. Heaven is a place. Heaven is the Father's home. Heaven is adequate for all who will go there. It's got many, many rooms in heaven. Listen to this. It's pictured as a home. We like to talk about uh, heaven as a great palace and out of his ivory palaces. And we see an oriental potentate with majestic palaces with their spires and towers ascending up into heaven and all the paraphernalia of royalty. Forget it. Forget it. The Lord pictured heaven as his father's house. It's a home. What warmth. You see, instead of a palace with richly ornamented passageways and magnificent halls for meetings and groups, the Lord pictures it as a home for many rooms. Hey, I've got news for you. I don't want to live in a mansion somewhere in the corner of glory, as the old country song says, and got a mansion in heaven. I don't want that. The Lord wants me to come and live in His house with Him. I've got a room in the Father's house. And this is the blessing. And that tells us that the many rooms are prepared for each of His children individually. God wants us there. And the marvelous thing is Christ is going to come back and take us home with Him. What a marvelous thing. Hey, why have a troubled heart when you have that in store? Do you see the secret here? of getting the trouble from your heart. Well, the disciples, you might think, are beginning to get their picture and their puzzled and troubled hearts are still just for a moment until the terrible thought arises, what good is a better place if you don't know where it is and how to get there? And Thomas comes up with the words, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? How do we know the way to heaven? 
That's been the quest of man throughout all the ages. And man has always wanted to try to find the way to heaven. They found it in various ways. By worshiping all gods, that terrible sickness of polytheism, by animal sacrifices, and even sometimes by human sacrifices. Thirty-six years ago, this past summer, I stood atop that great pyramid of the sun in Teotihuacan, just north of Mexico City. I gazed upon the spot, the very spot where many human sacrifices have been made. The Aztecs would bring healthy men and women to the top of that pyramid. By the way, it's the greatest pyramid in the world in volume. It's larger than the Great Pyramid in Egypt. It extends over many acres of ground. It goes up many feet into the sky. And on the top of that Great Pyramid, in one day, the Aztecs brought 10,000 whom they had captured in battle. And as they brought them to the top, they would hold them very firmly and slip them open and the priest would reach in and grab the heart while it was still quivering and place it on the altar. And in one day, 10,000 human hearts were placed on that one altar, thinking they would appease the gods. But I'll tell you that not even such a chain of human hearts can link earth with heaven. It's not found there. The way to heaven is clear. It's found by trust in Christ. You mentioned, I mentioned earlier that I would give you four thoughts and I've come to the fifth. Let me show you the fifth thought now. The fifth thought is brought out in this particular passage. Read verse four again very carefully. You know the way where I am going. Now the Lord gave five areas in which they were to trust Him. I gave you four. The fifth is very simple. You know where I'm going. You know it. Believe me, says the Lord, trust me. I know the way and you know the way. And they didn't trust him. Thomas challenged Christ on two points. The knowledge of the place Christ was going and the knowledge of the way. I'd like for us to look at these just for a moment. First, examine the statement of Thomas. Uh, we do not know where you're going. <laughs> and I asked, Thomas, haven't you just heard Christ's words? Haven't you just heard the issue out of the mouth of Christ? Uh, I'm going there and you know the way? Christ has explicitly stated his destination. It's his father's home. He said, we don't know where you're going, Lord. The Lord has just said, I'm going home. This tells us something very important. And it tells us something even more important about ourselves. You see, Thomas wanted a geographical destination. A road map complete with all the intercelestial highways, road signs, indicators for restaurants and motels and service stations along the way. Or to put it in the terms of that day, he wanted all the camel stops, caravansaries, oases and inns. Uh, he wanted the latest tour guide map so he could find the way. Well, let's face it, our concepts of heaven are so materialistic. And we want to know the way just as Thomas did. We insist oh, that heaven as an ethereal Oz with yellow brick road and all. See, there's some people that are so enamored with streets of gold and gates of pearl, they're going to be disappointed when they get to heaven. They don't have double-decker tour buses with angels as guides to point out all the interesting spots. We have all of these concepts concerning heaven. The fact is, it's not the trappings that make heaven. Heaven is where God is. And Christ has said, I'm going to my Father. Trust me, you know, and just like Thomas, we don't trust Christ, and we say we don't know. So they did know the destination. The second, Thomas said, we don't know the way. And the Lord answers this again. Thomas, weren't you listening? 
Christ has just told you the way. And we look at that and say, how could he not hear? But let's examine the intent of the question. How are we able, and the Greek is exactly that, how are we able to know the way? Thomas' question actually indicates one of the greatest evidences of all time. Christ has asked for faith and trust. Thomas wants more knowledge. The Lord has said, trust me, you know. Thomas says, Lord, give us more information so we can really know and then we can believe, you see. We want more knowledge and the Lord asks for more faith. Now the fact is, faith and knowledge are not always diametrically opposed. The fact is, there must be a certain amount of knowledge before faith can be operative. Faith is not just blind faith. That's what's so ridiculous about some of the controversies raging today. Faith must have a direct knowledge of its object, what it expects from the object, what the object is going to do and believe that it will do it. And therefore, we are not saying there is no foundation for asking for knowledge. But when Christ has said, I've already given you knowledge, have faith, to ask for more knowledge then shows a lack of faith and we don't trust him. Faith is not evidence. But Thomas' question, how are we able to know the way, is the essence of all human religion. Thomas wants to have a small part in his own ultimate destination. Lord, we want to be able to find the way. Now, the truth is, uh, you have uh, the, a road map along the way, and you have a map to get there. And uh, sometimes the map, written or verbal, you follow it, and ultimately you get to the destination. Now, we do give full credit to the one who made the map, the one who gave the directions, but somehow we give ourselves credit. Yep, we found it. Well, a map, who couldn't, you see? Yet somehow we take credit for finding a place. We want some role in it, small part. But now we come to the solution. Puzzles. The Lord has said, you know the way. Let's go back to the scriptures just one more time. Verse 3. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. The Lord is saying, I'm going to come back and take you home with me. That ought to be sufficient as to the way. The way to the Father's house is with me. The way to stop your troubled heart is to stay with me. We know the way. We know the guide. Christ knows the way to the Father. He's been there. He's there now. He's going to come back and take us there. He knows the way home. Now, if the Lord says, I know the way and I'm going to take you there, why don't we trust Him? And I see this morning this great problem of the troubled hearts that are all around us. The big problem is that we don't trust Christ for the solution. You see, we want a plan and Christ offers us a person. We want knowledge and He says, trust me and have faith. Don't you see this simple answer? The way to heaven, the way to the solution of the problems, whatever they are on your heart, is not through a road map. You don't find heaven on a map. The secret is with the person, Jesus Christ. Well, the troubled hearts of the disciples, totally unnecessary. They had Christ who would take them there. And I look at this again, and Christ says, I am the way. If the hearts of the disciples 
were troubled and they'd been with Christ for three years, then it's no wonder that the hearts of men today are perplexed. It's no wonder that those of us who call ourselves disciples of Christ, if we're temporarily deprived of the presence of the Lord, are troubled in our hearts. We've never had the privilege of spending three years with him personally, but we've had the privilege of studying those who were and hearing the words of Christ. So this morning, if you have problems in your heart, you have troubles there, you have things that are creating great consternation, I can understand that. I can understand it because you have not listened carefully enough to the words of Christ. The Lord said, do you really believe God? Do you really believe who God is? Trust Him. Do you really believe me? Trust me. And even more to the point, if the hearts of disciples can be troubled, then there is no doubt that the hearts of those who have never met Christ are deeply troubled. I do not deceive myself for a moment. I do not believe for a single minute, although I would love to, that every student who comes to a Christian college is really a child of God. I've met them. I have some friends that I had in college who are now avowed atheists. They went to the Christian college for four years. Now they say, I don't believe anything. Yeah, it's possible. And I say this morning that if you're here with a troubled heart, you don't know the way to God. You don't know the way to the Father's house. You don't have anything to do to find the way except to believe in Christ. For he says, I am the way. Are your hearts troubled? Solution is simple. Believe God. Believe in his oneness. Believe in his goodness. Believe in his grace, his power, his wisdom. Believe in Christ, that he is God. And that he cares for you. He is the way. Heavenly Father.